0: We are technically in Isaiah 9 still tonight. I plan to get into the first part of Isaiah 10, but in order to do that, we need a little introduction, no surprise. We need to understand a little bit of background here because by venturing into Isaiah 10, we're wandering into one of the more difficult theological concepts for people to wrap their brain around. And it is the concept that God is so sovereign that he can cause people to do things that he then judges them for. And that's really difficult for us to hang on to in any way, shape, or form. And the Apostle Paul himself also had to address that topic in Romans chapter 9. You're probably all familiar with it. He's gotten done explaining that God picks and chooses among the inhabitants of Israel, that he creates his own remnant. But he picks and chooses even down to the point of picking between two twins in a womb who he points out have done no good, no evil, And yet God chooses, Paul says, so that the election of grace would stand, that God gets to do the choosing regardless of actions. And then he brings up Pharaoh as an example and says that God did what he did with Pharaoh in order to show his own strength and power. That's verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And what did he do with Pharaoh? Well, he hardened Pharaoh's heart and caused Pharaoh to not let the children of Israel go. And then God brought multiple plagues all the way to killing the firstborn as a result of hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So God judged Egypt over something that God himself caused, which then causes Paul to make the statement, so then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he desires. And the very next question he asks, as he wrestles with this question of God being able to harden people and then judge them for their hardness of heart, his question in verse 19 is, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Human beings would intrinsically think that's unfair. How can God make people do things and no one can resist his will and he's so sovereign that everybody does what he determined that they were going to do but then he turns around and finds fault with them for doing the very thing that he is responsible for them doing. Paul's answer to that question is one of my favorite answers in the Bible. His answer to them is, Who are you? Because he has such a high view of God and God's sovereignty that he says, Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? In other words, God's just like he is. He has revealed himself in his Bible. This is what he's like. This is what he does. This is his character. This is his nature. And this is how he works. And there's really nothing you can say about it. You don't get to argue. You don't get to put God on trial. And you don't get to say, why are you doing things the way that you're doing them? Paul's answer is, who are you? The thing that is molded is not going to say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use or common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath who were prepared for destruction?" And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul in the New Testament has to wrestle with the very thing that we're about to read out of Isaiah. Now, that's important because we see again that Paul's theology is being drawn from the scripture. He didn't just make this up. He didn't just conceive of a God that's so sovereign that he could cause people to do things and then find fault with them for doing it. He has a very rock-solid example among the many examples that you find in the Old Testament, but this one is just blatant, where God is going to use Assyria to punish Jerusalem and Israel and then he's going to blame Assyria for the hardness of heart with which they attacked Jerusalem and along the way he's going to say and that wasn't even your intention Mm -hmm. I mean he takes complete credit for the fact that they attacked Jerusalem as a correction to his own people and then he blames them for having The haughtiness to actually do it. And what are you going to say about that? I mean, how sovereign is God really? And are you comfortable with a God that sovereign? Hmm. Well, the answer is just like Paul's answer: you might as well be comfortable with a God that's that sovereign, because that's the only God you get. And that's the only one that's in the Bible, and you don't have any options there. And so That's how sovereign God actually is. And if you don't like it, who are you? Right? Okay, so that's adequate introduction. We are now in Isaiah, starting at verse 8. That's where we left off last week. The balance of chapter 9, here God is going to lay out, yet again, his case against Israel and against Jerusalem. And then in verse 10, he's going to explain what he's going to do to punish them. He's going to bring the rod of his anger against them, and that's going to be Assyria. And then midway through the chapter, he's going to accuse Assyria for their own haughtiness in the way that they attacked Jerusalem and Israel. Got it? That's the the plan for tonight. Now we're going to cover some ground, and there's a lot of reading tonight because I'm of the opinion that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. And so let's start at verse 8. I will try to only make occasional comments, but we're going to try to cover some ground tonight. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. Who is Jacob? His name is heel catcher. His name is Supplanter. He had his name changed to Israel. So then the nation that grew out of his loins is known as the nation of Israel. But whenever God is treating them in a judgmental way or a corrective way, he goes back to calling them their original name. Never forget who you are. You're Jacob. You're heel catcher. You're the Supplanter. You're only Israel because I gave you that. It's an act of grace from God to give you the name prince that has power with God. But never forget who you really are. You're Jacob. So he calls them by both those names. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. And all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Okay, so Samaria is a nickname for the northern ten tribes collectively because Samaria is their capital. But the largest of the tribes in the northern kingdom is Ephraim. And so Ephraim and Mount Ephraim are nicknames for the northern kingdom, as is Samaria. So God uses both those names. All the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that's the entire northern ten tribes, and they are asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, even though their nation is slowly dilapidating into idol worship and intermarriage with Canaanites, even though the structure that they were supposed to have if they had followed the law of God, that is coming apart and God likens it to bricks falling out or the mighty trees all being cut down. But notice also that they see the solution to their problem as being themselves. The bricks have fallen out but will rebuild We'll make some smooth stones. We'll fix it. As we continue to look at the arrogance of Israel, you will see that God is saying, turn to me. I'm the one who gave it to you. I gave you the land of milk and honey. I'm the one who has supported you and protected you. I've even taken the wild animals out of the land for you. I've protected you thus far. If it's falling apart, you can't fix it. You are not the solution to your problems. Sound familiar theologically? You can't solve your problems. God has to solve your problems. The bricks are fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. God says that that is Samaria asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. So you have to read it. In a way that you understand their arrogance. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Rezin. Okay, Rezin is the king of the Arameans. We saw that last week. Now, the northern tribes have tried to make a pact with the Arameans. And they were going to collectively go attack the southern tribes. And go attack Jerusalem. And that's why the king in Jerusalem made a deal with the Assyrians to try to protect themselves against the Arameans and the northern tribes attacking them. So everybody's making political alliances. But what Israel did, when I say Israel, I mean the northern tribes, what Israel did was they went, rather than to God, they went to the Arameans, thinking that the power, the might, the armies of the Arameans would be able to protect them. They could attack their brethren. They'd be protected from the Assyrians. And so God is going to punish them by making the Arameans adversaries so that they're going to end up fighting against each other. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. We always think about God as being... That good and kind and gentle loving God who always wants our best benefit. But if you're an enemy of God, if you're not on God's side in this thing, he's against you. Mm -hmm. He's against the sinners and angry at them every day. And here it says that he spurs on, he encourages the enemies of Israel in order to punish Israel, in order to correct them. Now, is he punishing and correcting them for the purpose of scattering them and making them lose their identity as the covenant people of Israel? Is that the reason that he's punishing them? No. The reason is, and we're going to see it time and time again, because God wants them to turn back to him. Turn back to me. In fact, the way he's bringing that about is that he's bringing so much trouble into their lives that he is then expecting them to have to call him. He's going to corner them. He's going to back them into a situation where they have no other hope than to call on their God. And that is, by the way, if I can just throw this out theologically, still the same way God deals with us today. When you go through the difficulties of this life, who do you call out to? You call out to God. You don't call out to God when everything's great, when everything's fine when it's all rainbows and kumbaya, that's not when you're begging God. It's when you get knocked down, that's when you get on your knees, and God knows that. As I was saying it to you, you were all nodding, and trust me, if Kellen can figure it out, God can. He knows what it takes to draw his people back to him. So that's his intention here in bringing up enemies against Israel. Verse 12, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west. And they devour Israel with gaping jaws, big wide mouth, sharp teeth, just devouring Israel. And in spite of all this, His anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. You're going to see this phrase several times in these next couple of chapters. God is going to say, despite the fact that I did that to them, rather than turn to me like they should, instead they're running away from me, they're making deals with foreign countries, they're shaking their fist at me, they're angry at me, they are rebelling against me, and I'm doing this for the purpose of driving them to me. And yet, despite all this, his hand is still outstretched, and his anger does not turn away. Verse 13, yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them. See, there's his purpose, to turn them back to him. And yet the people don't turn back to him, even though he's the one that struck them. And they would know that. They would understand that it was God, the same God who delivered them into that land, He'd be the same God who is now driving them out of the land. They should know that. They should be willing to turn to him. And yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them. Nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel. Both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. Here's your English lesson for the night. For the folks on the internet, I just wrote M-E-R-I-S-M on the board, merism. Have you heard that word before? Do you know what a merism is? A merism is a little literary trick where you create two extremes in order to explain everything in between. So when you say from the head to the tail, Jesus spoke in merisms. When he said, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Well, we don't assume that he's not everything in between. We assume that he means I'm the whole of the alphabet and all the communication that you have is all a result of me. I'm the beginning, I'm the end of it. Mm -hmm. We speak in merisms. We do it all the time. If If you're looking for something and you want to express that you looked everywhere for it, you'll say, I was searching high and low. Okay. well, that means I looked everywhere. Now you know that that has a name. It is a merism, and that's what you're reading here when it says the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel. That means everything in between. And in a minute, he's going to tell you who the head is and who the tail is. Both palm branch and bulrush. The lush palm branches on the tops of the trees and the bulrushes down in the river. So everything across the board. Verse 15, the head is the elder and the honorable man. So the men who are to be respected within Israel, they're the head, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. So everything from an honorable man to a miserable liar, and everything in between. So God is going to cut them all off. For those who guide this people, says verse 16, are leading them astray, And those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. And in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. The description that he's going to give it here, the wickedness that burns like fire, is that it spreads quickly like wildfire. Ask anybody in California, they'll tell you what that's like. I mean, once that fire starts, it just spreads so quickly. And he says, that's what wickedness is like. And boy, that's true. Once wickedness gets a hold, it just spreads like wildfire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. So now God is going to respond with a fire of his own. Verse 19, by the fury of the Lord. Boy, that's a scary phrase, isn't it? By the fury of God. He's not just angry, he's furious. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up. And the people are like fuel for the fire. And no man spares his brother. Verse 20 is just a real interesting description. I'll read it and then I'll explain what it appears to mean. They slice off what is on the right hand but still are hungry... And they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. It's going to be explained a little bit more in verse 21 when he says, Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. So what that phrase starting in verse 20 seems to mean when it says they slice off what's at the right hand, but they're still hungry, means that they're not content with what's readily available. It's right there at their right hand. They can slice that off. They should be content with what they've been provided, but they're not happy. They want more. So then they eat what's on the left hand, which would be the rest of what's left. They eat that, and they're still not satisfied. And so then God describes them as devouring themselves. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. And Manasseh devours Ephraim. And Ephraim devours Manasseh. And together, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are against Judah. And in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still outstretched. Okay, so that's the scenario. That kind of sets the stage for what's coming up. Mm -hmm. That is God again laying out his case against Israel And explaining that Israel is going to come down on Judah. But God is not going to allow... ...either the northern tribes... ...or the might of Syria... ...to actually make it into Jerusalem. Now Assyria is actually going to conquer the northern tribes. They go into the Assyrian captivity. And they've been scattered ever since. That's why we know them as the lost tribes of Israel. They've been taken into the Assyrian captivity... And then more or less disappear into history, even though some of them are traceable. And so, God is now going to explain that Assyria, in all its might and power, is going to take the northern tribes, is going to wipe out the Arameans, is going to conquer that whole Middle Eastern area, and then get all braggadocious about, let's go get Jerusalem, because after all, we've conquered every place else and God despite their power and their might is not going to allow them to get in and the way that he conquers them is absolutely stunning and will hopefully leave you hopeful by the time we're done tonight. So that takes us to chapter 10. Woe to those who enact evil statutes. And to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, in order that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? How far? Well, from Assyria, we know that. So it's going to come from the distant east and north, and it's going to come down on them. And here is God saying, you're nothing but guilty. You make unjust decisions. You deprive the needy of their justice. You rob the poor of the people of their rights. And you make spoil of widows' houses, and you plunder the orphans. Now, what are you going to do when I decide to start punishing as a result? Where are you going to hide? Where are you going to run in the devastation that's coming? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Okay, so these are people who actually went to the Arameans before looking for help. They've gone to the Egyptians before looking for help. And God says, when I come against you, it's not going to be like other nations coming against you. When I come against you, where are you going to run for help? What deals are you going to make? What partnership are you going to enact with other nations to hide yourself from me? Nothing remains, verse 4, nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. Those are your two options. There's no middle ground. You're either going to go into Assyria as a captive and become slave to them, or you're going to fall by the sword. Those are your two options. There's no third option like I like my house, I like where I'm living, I'd like to stay right here in Israel, thank you. That option doesn't exist. God is going to punish them in such a way that he says nothing remains, no choices to you but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain and in spite of all this his anger does not turn away and his hand is still outstretched. Starting at verse 5. Pay attention to the words here. Now God is going to speak to Assyria, who he calls the rod of my anger. Assyria is the tool that God uses in order to punish his people Israel. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I treat them like a rod, like a staff. I use them in order to correct my people but woe to them okay so I got to ask one more time just so we're really really clear about this when they attacked Israel when they attacked the Arameans when they were taking captives when they were killing people did they think they were fulfilling and satisfying the word of God No, no I mean this is a foreign nation Did they think they were doing the exact thing that the sovereign God of Israel had determined they were going to do? No! They had no idea that's what they were doing. And yet God used them to do it and then held them guilty for doing it. That's a tough one for us to hang on to. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it, Assyria, Against Israel. And I commission it. This was his plan. He determined it. And I commission it, Assyria, against the people of my fury. To do what? To capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Mm -hmm. Now look at verse 7. God knows That's not the intention of their heart. They are not attacking Israel with the intention of correcting them on Yahweh's sake. And God knows that. So God points it out. Yet it does not so intend. That's not what Assyria is intending. Nor does it plan so in its heart. But rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So they're busy nation building They're busy attacking other nations to expand their own borders and they don't recognize that what they're actually doing is correcting God's people and that they're nothing more than a tool, than an instrument in the hands of an almighty God who is utilizing them in order to correct his own people. So this is really all about, in the larger context, this is really all about God dealing with Israel. Assyria just happens to be part of the plan. But then listen to God judge them. Verse 8 here's the haughtiness of Assyria. For it says, Are my princes, are not my princes all kings? In other words, we are so grand, we are so glorious that even the, the princes in our land live like kings. Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad? Or Samaria, like Damascus, those are all cities of the Arameans and of the Israelites. And they're comparing them. They're flattening the curve. They're, oh, that's a phrase we don't want to use anymore, <laughs> do we? They're, they're leveling the playing field. And they're saying, these are all cities that we've conquered. These are all great cities, both among the Arameans and among the Israelites. And we've conquered all those cities. So then what's the difference if we go conquer Jerusalem? Jerusalem. We've conquered everybody else. We're going to come get you. Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just like I have done to Samaria and all her idols? So they're saying, the God you worship isn't any stronger than the gods they worship. They turned to their gods, and their gods couldn't help them. We wiped them all out. We conquered all those cities. We're coming for you, Jerusalem, because your God's not any greater. Do you hear the audacity of that? Mm -hmm. You can see why Yahweh, the living God, would go, oh, I think I'll correct you on that one. Wait till you see the way he corrects them. Verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. When? After I've completed the work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem. So after you've done everything that I ordained you would do, that I commissioned you to do, I put you into the job, into the task of correcting my people. And after that correction has taken place, then I'm going to turn and correct you for the haughtiness of your heart with which you attacked my people. It's remarkable, but it's... Only something that you can understand if you have a really firm grasp on the idea that God is absolutely sovereign. He does whatever he wants to do. Verse 13. For he has said, the king of Assyria has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the people and I plundered their treasures And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. As one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. He's comparing himself to somebody who finds an abandoned nest that still has eggs in it. And you just reach up and take the eggs out. He says, that's the way that I conquered other cities, other nations. I just went in and robbed them and took all their riches, took everything they had. And it was so easy for me, it was like robbing an empty nest. Pretty arrogant. And there was not one who flapped his wing or opened its beak or chirped. In other words, nobody could stand against me. Nobody chirped against me. Okay, here's God responding. Is the axe to boast itself against the one who chops with it? Hmm. This is very much like Paul saying. Who are you? And then he says, doesn't the... The potter have the right over the clay to make whatever he wants, but then the pot doesn't get to say to the one who's making it, why did you make me like this? The one who is making the pottery gets to decide what to do with the pottery. Well, Paul got that idea. He got that theology from right here in Isaiah, where God himself says that an ax is not going to boast against the person who's slinging the ax. When's the last time a hammer ever looked up at you and said, wow, my head, stop it. <laughs> it doesn't get to do that. An axe is the axe to boast itself against the one who chomps with it. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it. That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So the rod is just wood. It's just a piece of wood, a chunk of wood, and the person who wields it is an actual human being, meaning that the rod doesn't get to tell the human being that's wielding it what he thinks of the enterprise that the human is in. God uses that comparison to say, you're just dead wood. Mm. You're nothing more than an axe in my hand. And you're going to boast against me? I'm the one who wielded you to accomplish this. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, how often now has Isaiah used that phrase? When he's describing God as an absolutely sovereign God, he keeps using that phrase. The Lord of hosts, the God of hosts, the one who's in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. The one who's in charge of his universe and his creation. It's that big God, that sovereign God, that all controlling God. And when he's angry at you, he knows how to express his anger. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting disease among Assyria's stout warriors. And under his glory, God's glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And then listen to this prophetic phrase. And the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. Just two chapters ago, he was predicting the Messiah to come and the glorious future for Israel. Here he is again making reference to this holy one who he describes as a light and a flame. And that light, that flame, will burn and devour all his thorns and briars in a single day. He's going to wipe out his enemies. The book of Revelation says he comes with a two-edged sword out of his mouth, mops up the field of the Megiddo plain, so much so that the blood runs to the bridles of the horses. Isaiah says it's going to be like in a single day. He's just going to come back and defend himself against his enemies. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. That's why Jesus would say, don't fear men. Fear God who can cast both body and soul into hell. Mm. Here's the same description. He's going to destroy them, and he's going to put them, both soul and body, into that destruction. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in other words when God gets done wiping out the armies of the Assyrians it's going to be like sick men wasting away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down in other words there's going to be so few soldiers left that even an unlearned child could count them. Now, this is an army that's been described as like the sands of the sea. This is a a mammoth army, an uncountable number of people. And God says, when I get done with you, a child's going to be able to count you. Okay, so next week we're going to pick up at verse 20, but to finish off tonight... And give you a little glimpse into what God actually accomplished. Go to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. We're going to start reading at verse 21. The Assyrians are preparing to come down on Jerusalem. They're finally going to implement their plan that they've bragged about. They're going to come down on Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah has been praying to God for deliverance. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. So don't be afraid of him. God's against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Okay, so now he's talking directly to Sennacherib and saying, here you are wagging your head at Jerusalem like you're just going to conquer her and wipe her out, you've despised Jerusalem and mocked Jerusalem, and you don't understand they're mine, who have you actually reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Here's a very consistent personality profile. God once again saying, you're just haughty, you're just arrogant. And so who have you really reproached? It's not Jerusalem. It's not the king of Jerusalem. It's not Hezekiah. You're reproaching me because these belong to me. Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Here's the answer Against the Holy One of Israel. That's who you're actually at war with. Uh oh, is right. Through your servants. In other words, through your armies, you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the river of Egypt. So here he is just brag, 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 brag. I just destroy whatever I feel like destroying, and I take advantage of everything. I've drunk up all the water. I've cut down all the trees they have. I've made everything they have mine. Here's God's response. Have you not heard long ago? I did it. All that stuff you're bragging about? All those things you think you've accomplished, all those things that are feeding your arrogance, I not only did it, I decided it a long time ago. This is what I'm doing through you in order to correct my people. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it from ancient times. I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Sure, you did turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps, but while you're busy bragging about it and thinking that you did it, I'm here to tell you, I'm doing it. I'm doing it through you. I turned these cities over to you. I enriched you. I made you powerful. I'm the one who gives you breath in your nostrils. I'm keeping you alive to accomplish these things. And by the way, there's a whole backstory here. ...that we just don't have time to get into. But eventually he's going to return back to the capital of Assyria. And what is the capital of Assyria? You all know it. Nineveh. Why does Nineveh still exist? Because God sent Jonah the prophet to Nineveh. Because God was going to destroy them. They had become so evil and corrupt that God sent them a prophet they then repented in sackcloth and ashes and God didn't destroy them because God was keeping them alive so that the Assyrians would become powerful enough to come and conquer Israel and then come down on Jerusalem this is all God's plan that's why God could say I planned it a long time ago I've been preserving you I even sent you a prophet to make sure that you would repent so that I could preserve you because you're part of my master plan and you can't be wiped out until I decide to wipe you out. Oh, and by the way, the Babylonians, wipe them out. You get the big picture? Mm -hmm. When When I say sovereign God, do you get some idea what kind of God I'm talking about? The God who's in control of human history? Have you not heard, long ago, I did it, from ancient times I planned it, now I have brought it to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps, and therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. Why couldn't they fight back when you conquered those cities? Because I made sure that the inhabitants of those cities ended up short of strength, so they couldn't fight back. Wow, that's sovereign, that's a God that's really in charge. They were dismayed and they were put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops is scorched before it's grown up. But I know, here's God explaining his own sovereignty, I know you're sitting down, and I know you're going out and you're coming in, and I know you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, And because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore, I will put my hook in your nose. That's how you guide an animal. You put a hook in their nose and you guide them. They used to do that with oxen. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way that you came. Okay, so where did he come from? Assyria, Nineveh. Where is he going to go back to? Assyria, Nineveh. Is he going to get to attack Jerusalem? No! Because God is preserving Jerusalem. Then this shall be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year what springs from the same. And in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downwards And bear fruit upwards. In other words, Jerusalem's going to be planted. It's going to remain solid despite the fact that it's going to be surrounded by the enemy Assyrians. Why? Because verse 32, For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Stick with me, few more verses, and my story gets really good. You enjoyed it so far? Yes. Because we're just building to the climax here. We're about to get to the climax, and you're going to go, Yay, God! <laughs> go, God! That's my God! If this God is on your side, you're good, you're safe, you're fine. Therefore, says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria... He shall not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. They're not even going to get a chance to attack. Neither shall he come before it with a shield nor throw up a mound against it. They would build mounds to scale the walls. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return. And he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for what reason? he's just gotten done telling you how bad they are he's just gotten done telling you how evil they are how they're rebellious against him how he is correcting them for all their sin and rebellion so for what reason is he going to protect Jerusalem? he tells you right here I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake it says nothing to do with all of you I'm going to save the city because that's the place where I chose to place my name. That's the place where my temple is. That's the place where my worship is. And I made a covenant with David. And therefore, I'm going to protect Jerusalem because if it is completely conquered by the Assyrians, then it's going to completely wipe out the religion that is therein. But if you know your Israelite history and Jewish history... You know that the Babylonians do manage to take the Jews out of Jerusalem, take them into captivity, and Jeremiah says specifically, it's only going to be for 70 years. And then Daniel prays, make it a 70-year promise, do what you said you were going to do. And then Babylon is conquered by the Medo-Persians, and then Cyrus, the Persian king, decides to let the Jews go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. Remember what God said? He's going to plant it. So, by the way that the king of Assyria came, by the same way he's going to return. And he shall not come to this city, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. They come, they're a massive army, they surround the city. They are encamped outside the walls and they are waiting for the moment that the attack signal is given and they're going to start shooting their arrows and building their mounds and they're going to come against the city. And while they are waiting for the attack, by the way, this all actually happened in 701 B.C., As the Assyrians were encamped around Jerusalem, verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Just like God promised. Just like sick men wasting away. They're just all going to waste away. And there were so few soldiers left that a child could count them. Amazing! I mean, go ahead and admit it. That's astounding. And by the way, is it worth pointing out? If that God is for you, you can see why Paul would say, Who can be against you? All the armies of the Assyrians, if he has to, he'll kill 185,000 in one night. By the way, you'll notice that it doesn't say he sent an army of angels. He sent an angel, which is kind of scary. One angel, one night, 185,000 in order to keep the promise that he made that the Assyrians wouldn't even shoot an arrow. And they never got to. By the way, you also then probably shouldn't tell your kids, be an angel. Because that's kind of scary now. That's 185,000 in a night. Behold, they were all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. He went back exactly the same way he came, exactly like God said he was going to do. And it came about, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrammelech, I think I got that right, and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Assyria then in 609 BC is going to fall to Babylon and be wiped out completely. That's history that happened. So, so far God's batting average is perfect. Everything that God said in his word here in Isaiah, everything he prophesied, actually came true in human history, in time, and the circumstances of planet Earth. Therefore, we can have great confidence that the things he has said to us, the things he has promised us, are all things that we can count on, because so far God has not missed, even if it means wiping out 195,000 which is a huge army, he wipes them out in the night because he had made the promise to Jerusalem that he would defend them. And he did. And he promised Hezekiah the king that he would do that. Why? Because Hezekiah prayed and God heard it. You want to talk about the fervent prayer of a righteous man availing much? There's an example of it right there. So there are so many lessons that we can draw from this, not only the necessity of going to God in your times of trouble and praying to him, also recognizing that the times of trouble in your life are for the purpose of drawing you back to God. He knows how to corner you in such a way that you have no other option but to run to him. And then also he's going to protect you. He always protects his people across the board. He always takes care of his people. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And oh yeah, he picks and chooses and elects. It's unescapable here. He certainly treated Jerusalem differently than he treated the Assyrians. He picks and chooses and decides. And what's that other word I'm thinking of? Sovereign. He's just so sovereign. He's so unbelievably sovereign that he gets to do whatever he wants to do and you don't get to bark back you don't get to put him on trial you don't get to ask him what he's doing because whatever it is he wants to do that's what he does David said our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases whatever he's pleased to do that's what he does he pleases himself in what he does so the best thing you can do is get on your face in front of a God like that and recognize that he's going to do what he's going to do regardless and you're either going to be on his side or against him and the against side does not turn out real well <laughs> ever all right yes all right any questions about that no we're good we're well, good i'm i'm glad it was that clear in that case say good night to the internet congregation